You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Uh, if you're new, so glad that you're here uh, and joining us on this beautiful Sunday uh, morning. Uh, my name is James. I'm on uh, the pastoral staff here, and uh, it's a privilege uh, to continue our series in the life of David. And by way of uh, introduction, uh, I just want to make a statement, uh, a fact uh, that's true, uh, that Major League Baseball is almost 150 years old, almost 150 years old. And this year, there's one team that's on pace to finish in the bottom five of all time of the 150 years. And that one team is my team, the Oakland A's. They've been in the news a lot, not because of their on-field greatness, but for other things, but I love them. I love the A's. At breakfast every morning, I, up the, I update the family, because it's always a nine o'clock game. I update the family. I say, hey, the A's lost last night, because that's what it always is. <laughs> No one ever responds to me at the breakfast table. I don't think they care. But back when I was in Bible school, I had flown one weekend to a ministry-related opportunity, and and waiting to return home in the airport, I kind of passed just the boredom that you have as you wait for flights by studying for a, a final exam that I had the next day. And as it is in the airport, you kind of just like tune out all the PA announcements that are just kind of on loop, right? And so as I sat there, I I vaguely remember hearing something to the effect of like, United Airlines is going to offer $250 if you're able to rebook your flight. And I somewhat remember how like this continually drone on, like United Airlines is now offering $500 to anyone who can rebook their flight. But with my like head down and like my study notes, great student, right? Like I don't really remember or wasn't really registering what was happening. But in time, I heard this very clearly, United Airlines is now offering $750 if you're able to rebook your flight. And at that point, they had my attention. And I pondered the situation. I have a final exam tomorrow. And if I don't take it, I fail the class. And I kind of set back my life a little bit. But on the other hand, as a broke college kid, that's $750. And this might be my opportunity to fulfill my lifelong dream of going to Oakland, California and watching a baseball game. I've never done it. And I remember saying to myself in that moment, okay, if it gets to $1,000, I'm taking the money. And so I waited, like just kind of nervously waiting. And I waited. And that next announcement never came. Someone else took the money. As we continue looking at the life of David, I promise I'm going to connect this. As we continue looking at the life of David, we've seen how David's been anointed for the throne, right? We've seen that, but then we've also seen how Saul has, has kept David from that very throne. 
And David, he spent a decade, 10 years of his life up to this point, living as a fugitive, like roaming the wilderness, sleeping in caves, doing all he can do to stay one step ahead of Saul. But as last week, as we came into 2 Samuel, we, we now know that Saul is, is dead. Which means there's no one standing in David's way to claim the throne. The throne which the prophet Samuel, a decade ago, said, David, God is making you the next king. So how does David pursue or take the throne? Does, does he storm into the palace and, and make everyone surrender to his rule? I mean, if there's ever a time for David to take this crown for himself with his two fists and with a demand, like, it's, it's, it's now, right? But David doesn't do that. You see, the temptation in our lives that we face, it's never limited Hear this now, it's never limited in only pursuing bad things to get something bad. Our temptations are are very much also about pursuing good things, but in bad ways. You hear me? Was my desire to go to Oakland an honorable thing? I don't know. It certainly wasn't sinful, right? It was just a neutral part of life. But in that situation, to to make that happen, to make that a reality, I would have to pursue it in a way in which was not honorable at all. I'd have to email my professor and and either outright lie, like, hey, I'm sorry, I came down with an illness, and and I'm going to need to reschedule this exam. Or or I could tell a half-truth, right? We we do this all the time. Like, I'm terribly sorry, but my return flight got bumped, and I'm going to need to remake the exam. Either pathway is just deceitful and and, and wrong. What I'm trying to say is when the end goal of what we want is something good or or righteous or just downright neutral, there's often a temptation to pursue it in a dishonorable way. Perhaps convincing ourselves, well, well, God would would want me to have it. So so it's a good thing. He wants me to have this thing in my life. So he'll be okay with how I pursue it here. We might believe that God wants to bless my family. He wants to provide for our needs. So it, it's okay if I choose to neglect my children and, and overwork at, at my place of work. God wants me to be happy and, and loved, right? So it's okay to compromise on God's standards of, of marriage and, and perhaps moving in with your boyfriend or girlfriend. We might say, well, God wants me to do well in my academic pursuits, so it's okay to just take credit for someone else's work to get a passing grade. Often our temptation in life is to pursue good things, but in our own way, in a sense, to take the crown for ourselves. But in our text, David models a better way, that there's no pursuit in life more important than the pursuit of joining God and his kingdom. That there's no pursuit in life more important than the pursuit of joining God and his kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we need to see you in this narrative this morning. We ask you, Jesus, by the power of your word and 
your spirit to put to life this beautiful narrative. Lord, prune back any hedge of disbelief. We ask that you open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Well, as we work through, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 2. If you're not there, you can open up your Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 2 will be on the screen as well, and there's some Bibles in the back if you didn't, don't have one. But as we work our way through this chapter, we're really going to see three movements of David. We're going to see three movements. We're going to see first that David, there's this ascension, David ascends. And then we're going to see that David has an invitation. And then thirdly, we're going to see that David faces opposition. So three movements, ascension, invitation, and opposition. And all three of these movements demonstrate to us really our big idea that there's no pursuit in life more important than the pursuit of joining God and his kingdom. So first, David's ascension. And ascension, I think we know, is the noun form of the verb ascend, right? And so we know ascend means to go up, to ascend the stairs, to ascend the mountain, to go up. But in the first three verses of chapter 2, if you turn there with me, the Hebrew word to go up in these first three verses is actually used five times. And where there's repetition, there's importance, there's significance. The author's alerting us to something. So read with me in chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said, Go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also. And I don't know how to say this lovely lady's name. And Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him and everyone with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. Man, I had that nailed too in my head before I read that. I'm mad at myself. But by this repetition, by this repetition, we will see that there are five times that there is this word in Hebrew to go up. And the author is telling us not that David's just simply making a geographical move from the land of the Philistines where he's been to Hebron. That's not the point. This emphasis of five times of this ascension to go up is to emphasize the importance of David's ascension, of of going up into the position which God has anointed for him, which is the throne, to be king over his people. And I I meant to have this bolded on this screen, but we can see it. It it says, go up five times. Shall I go up? Go up, God says. To which shall I go up? And God says, uh, to Hebron. So David goes up. And then lastly, David brought up his men. So there's five times this word to go up. And what I want you to notice that though this is David's ascension to the throne, this is nothing of David's presumption of the throne. You hear me? That though this is David's ascension to the throne, this is nothing of David's presumption of the throne. Saul is dead. There's nothing stopping David from from taking the throne. And if any one of us were in David's shoes in this moment, we think, well, God anointed me for this moment. I guess it's my time. I better go up and take the throne. That's fairly logical, right? But I love David's response. I love David's response in verse 1. Knowing all of this, that the throne is there for the taking. It's his. Verse 1, after this, what? David inquires of the Lord. 
David inquires of the Lord. Any one of us would just presume the throne was ours for the taking, but David's like, hold up. Let me check with God first. Let me see what God says first. David inquires of the Lord. David doesn't take this into his own judgment that he perhaps knows best, even though this is a righteous thing to have. David doesn't seek out his agenda, even though it's a good thing to possess. Neither does David, even though he's a prince, like cut to the front of the line. David doesn't make much of his past saying, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? You you ever hear of Goliath being cut down? You ever hear that little folk song of like, Saul has struck his thousands, but David has ten thousands? Yeah, 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 that's, that's me. There's none of that going on. But rather in humility, in deference to God and God's plan, David inquires of the Lord, shall I go up? Is this the right time, God? And God says, yes. And so we see that David takes his family there, verse 3, up to Hebron. And in a very nondescript, out-of-the-way kind of throwaway line there in verse 4, David becomes king. We've been waiting for this moment, right? We'd expect a little more celebration, but it's not here. Verse 4, and the men of Judah come, and they anoint David king over the house of Judah. And what's privately happened, you know, a decade ago with the prophet Samuel anointing David as king now publicly becomes realized in this moment. But, but I want us to go back and look at this exchange between God and David in those first few verses. Because David's ascension to the throne, this movement that we see of David, it teaches us something as we consider that there's no pursuit in life more important than the pursuit of, of God and his kingdom. We see in in, in verse 1, again, David inquires of the Lord, shall I go up? And God says, go up. But then David asks a follow-up question. He says, where do you want me to go? Which shall I go? And God says to Hebron. And David goes there, as as we've seen. What what basically David is saying is, God, what, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? He's saying, I want to join you. David doesn't figure out what he wants to do and then ask God to bless it. David first asks what God wants him to do and seeks to join in what God is already up to. David's saying, there's no no pursuit in life more important than the pursuit of joining you, God, and your kingdom. I think if we're honest, a lot of us go through life backwards. Backwards. I think a lot of us go through life backwards saying, God, this is what I think needs to be done. Help me. Rather than saying, God, help me to see what needs to be done and lead me in it. Over and over, Scripture bears this out that God is the primary actor. That God is the one that brings salvation. God is the one that brings blessing, not us. And to be like David, to be a person after God's own heart, it's to be one who seeks to join God in what he's already doing. But what does that mean? How do we discern or or know where God is at work? How do we know what to join? I think sometimes, I think there's, it's a great, great question to be asking I think sometimes God's Spirit invites us into opportunities. I think we see this often in the New Testament as we go through Acts. 
Specifically, we might think of Paul who receives a vision from the Spirit to go help a certain church, and Paul goes and joins God's mission in that place. Sometimes God's Spirit makes known opportunities where God is clearly at work. He presents those opportunities to us. Sometimes God's Spirit leads us into conversations. I think we can think of Jesus with the woman at the well in John 4. As Jesus is is talking with this this lady, he, he discerns that God has softened her heart. And so Jesus joins the work of God and points out her need for living water. I think God's Spirit leads us into conversations that it calls us for boldness and courage to join what God is doing in that conversation. Sometimes God's Spirit just delivers unexpected success. We can think of Peter in Acts who witnesses the conversion of many Gentiles. And so Peter joins God's work by staying on in this Gentile region for some time, unplanned and unexpected. Sometimes it becomes very clear that God is up to something because it's unexpected. This is the work of God. I think what I want to say is that this is a posture, a a dependence, a humility to continually be led by God and His Spirit. God, lead me, guide me, direct me in everything I do. One thing I try to do in the morning is to take my daily schedule and just pray through every person I know on my calendar that I'm going to see. It's to pray through every place I know that I will be at. And just simply say, God, when I'm in this meeting, help me make decisions that's in tune with your spirit and word. God, when I show up at Citigroup or when I show up for this lunch appointment, give me eyes and ears to best encourage my brothers and sisters in Jesus. Because for the Christian, there's an intentionality, there's a calling for how we go through our day. We need to be saying, I want to be used by you, God, for your purposes, not mine. And that like David, like, I want to join you in your work. A great picture of this actually uh, is, it happens in, in, in chapter 5, 2 Samuel chapter 5. I love this picture. In chapter 5, verse 22, it's on the screen, and this is when David's first battle comes up with the Philistines. It says this, And the Philistines came up yet again and and spread out in the valley of Rephahim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to the rear, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching, hear this now, and when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. In other words, when you hear and see the evidence of God at work, that is when you hear the sound in these trees, God is saying, get yourself up and join me. You see that? When you hear and see the evidence of God at work, get yourself up and join him. That's a fantastic picture. So movement one is, is, is David's ascension to the throne. As we know, the crown was his, and it's a righteous and good thing for David to possess, and, and yet David does not pursue the crown in his own way. He does not take the crown for himself. Rather, he waits for the Lord, and he takes the crown in the Lord's way. What good things, perhaps in your life, might you be tempted 
to pursue in your own way rather than trusting in the Lord's way. It could be a number of things, financial or academic success, love, companionship, happiness, peace, comfort. These are all good things. But what is it for you? What good thing in life might you be tempted to pursue in your own way? Hear this truth. I think it'll be on the screen. You'll never achieve the purposes of God by compromising the commands of God. Movement two. David's invitation. David's invitation. Every election we know, candidates tell us what they're going to do in their first days of office, right? It usually goes something like this. In the first 100 days of office, I'm going to cut taxes or extend some sort of benefit, right? Something like that. So when it comes to David's newly established kingly reign, like what is going to be David's first action as king? What is he going to be about? Verse 4, the second half. And they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. And let's just stop right here, because in 1 Samuel 31, if you were to flip those two pages back, we read that these men of Jabesh-Gilead actually risked their lives to cross over enemy lines to take Saul's body, who had just been killed, and to retrieve his body for burial. But we also need to know that these same men were, were supporters of Saul. Because years prior in 1 Samuel, we're told that Saul had saved these people from the Ammonites, and they remained loyal supporters of Saul throughout Saul's reign, even willing, as we see later in 1 Samuel, to risk their lives simply to retrieve Saul's body for a proper burial. But, but as we know, Saul was opposed to David, right? Therefore, any supporter of Saul would also oppose David, which should immediately pique our curiosity for what possible interests David might have in these very supporters of Saul, his opponents. Like, what does David want with them? Verse 5, David sends messengers. What is going to be in this message, right? David sends messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. This is shocking. This is very surprising that David begins this message by praising his opponents for their loyalty. But David's not done. Verse 6, now may the Lord show steadfast love and, and faithfulness to you. Not only does David praise them, he also wants them to know of God's love and faithfulness. David's still not done. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. This is an invitation. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul, your Lord, is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David's simply saying, hey, your leader Saul is dead. Come join me. Though these men are on the wrong side, opponents, David extends really grace David invites them into his kingdom, to his table, saying, I promise, I promise to do good for you. I will make your life good. And as this invitation is sent to these opponents, I, I imagine they're saying to one another, like, we're enemies of David. 
Like, why is he inviting us into his kingdom? Doesn't what David does here kind of give you an inkling of Jesus? That though we were sinners, enemies, opponents, Jesus died for us. In a sense, that's what's being portrayed here. And let me just pause right here and just talk to anyone in this room who may be here this morning and not have a relationship with Jesus. And perhaps you're here wanting just to learn more about who Jesus is or what church is all about. I just want to say I'm so glad that you're here. And this is a message really of of good news. Because the Bible makes it very plain that you and me by our sins have placed ourselves in a position of opposition to God. But even in that state of being opposed to God, God by his mercy and grace has made a provision through the death of Jesus taking upon himself the penalty for our sin so that we may freely enter into his kingdom. And like these opponents of David, we can possess a seat at God's table in the banquet hall of his kingdom. I want you to hear that God's not opposed to you. That God is for you. And that he loves you. And that he is inviting you to take his provision and to trust him that through his life, death, and resurrection, there's a place for you at his table And he promises to do you good. I pray you take that invitation if you've yet to do so. But far different than any other earthly kingdom, David's first action as king sets the tone for what his kingdom will be about. A kingdom defined by grace and mercy. Extending grace and mercy to his very opponents. Why? Because that's the way of the kingdom. And there's no pursuit in life more important than the pursuit of seeking God's kingdom here and now. Movement to David's invitation. As David takes the throne, many within his kingdom oppose him. They despise him. They hate him. And yet David does not return that hatred. David extends mercy. He invites the very people who despise him to the banquet hall. Who might you need to extend grace and mercy to this morning? Perhaps for the 10th time, again. Who might you need to extend grace and mercy to? It's the way of the kingdom. Know this. Truth, our horizontal extension of mercy to others is to be unending because the vertical extension of mercy we've received from God is unending. Movement three, David's opposition. We're not told if those at Jabesh Gilead actually respond to David's invitation. But what we do know is that real opposition rises up in David's life very quickly. And this opposition comes from Abner, the commander of Saul's army, who we also know from 1 Samuel is Saul's cousin. And so Abner certainly knows that 
Uh, David is God's anointed king, yet he refuses to accept it. So what does Abner do? Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, man, how would you like to be called Ner? It's got to sound differently. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth. How would you like that name? Took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanahim. Man. And he made him king over Gilead and the rest of Israel there. What we see here in these two verses is that really Abner is trying to extend the reign of Saul. Abner is trying to extend the reign of Saul. So he self-anoints. Or, uh, yeah, so he self-anoints uh, the only remaining son of Saul, Ishbosheth, as an alternative king, as a, as a rival king. So now the people of God at this time have, have two kings, right? And so I don't know if you can see on this map, but really David is set up as king in, in the south, really just one tribe, the tribe of Judah. And Ishbosheth is in the north, king over all the other remaining tribes of Israel. Two kings. And so you can expect that this setting up of two kings, these two rival kings, means a fight is coming, right? Which is exactly what fills our remaining verses of verses 12 through 33. Two kingdoms fighting for the control of one throne. And I'll just summarize it, but you can scan through it as I summarize but what we'll see is, is Abner, the general of Ishbosheth's army, and Joab, the general of David's army, they decide to choose 12 of their best men, soldiers, fighting men, and say, you're going to fight. You're going to represent our two kingdoms, and whoever comes out the victor takes the kingdom. It kind of sounds like my junior high days in the playground, if I'm honest, right? What's the result? All 12, 24 of these soldiers die to which we're told later on in the narrative that it ignites not a solution, but an even fiercer battle that rages. Eventually, Joab and his men, David's guys, get the upper hand. But this battle, as we're told in, in chapter 3, verse 1, is, it's just a long, it's a beginning of a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Nothing is solved here. And over the next few chapters, we'll read how Abner turns on Ishbosheth and how Joab murders Abner and how Ishbosheth is murdered by his two own soldiers. These next few chapters of Scripture is disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. It's humanity at its worst. David is governing a kingdom bathed in revenge and blood and chaos. And it doesn't get better. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. Everyone in this story, except for David, really dies. And that's kind of the point. That the problems and issues of this kingdom are too deep and too messy for even a righteous ruler like David to fix. Throughout all of human history, political leaders have risen up claiming to have a solution to end injustice and bring about peace and prosperity and good to the people. But every governmental system has failed to bring about lasting peace and good. What humanity needs is a, a different savior. One that can heal its people in places the government can't touch. David is not the king we need, Jesus says. 
Movement three, David's opposition. David becomes the king, but rather than receiving a warm welcome, we might expect the majority of God's people line up in opposition to David under the reign of King Ishbosheth. But God's people can only be united when they come under the reign of their true king, King Jesus. Therefore, hear this, if that is true, There's no pursuit more important than the pursuit of joining God and his kingdom, for it's only his kingdom. There's no other kingdom that can do this, that bring about lasting peace and joy and good. No other kingdom can do that. Only God's kingdom can. So whose kingdom are you pursuing today? In whom or in what is your confidence for a better tomorrow? A political party, money, self, friends? Whose kingdom are you pursuing today? And know this truth that the only comprehensive design, I should say good, for the only comprehensive design for good able to cut across nations, political systems, territories, genders, affiliations, cut across everything, is the worship of the true and living God. It's striking to me as we conclude that David comes to the throne in a mess, an absolute bloody mess. And yet, the same becomes true of Jesus as well. Jesus' coming into our world and going out of our world was filled with bloodshed and injustice. And yet through all of that dark chaos, God brought his king to the throne. The same is true of our lives. Your life may feel like an absolute mess, but just as God was sovereign And bringing David to the throne and Jesus to the throne through all of that chaos, through all of that chaos, God will be faithful. God will be faithful in bringing his kingdom out of your mess too. He's sovereign over all and nothing will stop or prevent his reign or rule from happening. Let's continue encouraging one another in this. We need each other to remind ourselves of this truth that there's no pursuit in life more important than the pursuit of joining God and his kingdom. I can't think of a better group of people as we celebrate new members coming into this church that do it with y'all. I love you. Let's continue reminding each other of this wonderful truth. Jesus, we ask for your help in this, that we would be like David, a man or woman after your heart who seeks you first in all things. Lord, may we not be about ourselves and our own little kingdom that we think might be a big deal but may we be about your kingdom, God. Help us, Lord, to walk uprightly 
and purely before you. Lord, help us to uh, confess sin, reveal sin to us, Lord, that we might see you most clearly and walk out your love before others in our community. Lord, we ask for your help. We thank you for this life of David as, as he points us to a better, more true, more lasting king. We thank you for the life of David. We pray by the power of your spirit that you would help us to become not like David, but more like you, Jesus. In the name we pray, amen.